Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy here with my co-host Hattie Dulac. Hello Hattie. Hi Kate. It's good to be seeing you even if it is only on Zoom. And thanks to our supporter BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. We'll be talking later on to two of the team from New Milton Library, who'll be talking about what it's like to have library users back in the building again. Yeah, they've really missed their visitors. And don't forget, if you're listening to this podcast before the end of May, you've got until Tuesday, June the 1st to return any overdue books or anything else you've borrowed, and you won't have to pay a fine. You can take a look at our website for all the details of this book amnesty and about all the steps we've taken to keep our visitors and staff safe. This episode also features an old friend of the Love Your Library podcast. You might remember Lisa Barfoot from Chandler's Ford Library, who took part in our very first podcast when we interviewed Anne Cleves. We love a Love Your Library throwback. Lisa might also be familiar to you as she runs our online book club, which you can join on our Facebook page. Now, TM Logan was a recent guest of the book club, so Lisa took the opportunity of interviewing him about his latest book, Trust Me, and what a great job she did. TM Logan, or Tim, which is his actual name, says he writes the kind of books he loves to read, tense psychological thrillers where bad things happen to regular people. His books have sold over a million copies in the UK and explore themes of loyalty and betrayal, love and hate, trust, jealousy, secrets and revenge. He used to be a newspaper journalist, which gives you a bit of an interesting insight into his none-too-positive depiction of the media in his latest novel. All his books have been bestsellers, but he's probably best known for The Catch, which is about a father's suspicions that his daughter's boyfriend isn't quite what he appears to be. And also The Holiday, set in the south of France, and uh, Richard and Judy Pick in 2019. His latest book, Trust Me, is an incredibly fast-paced thriller which imagines what might happen if you were asked to look after a stranger's baby for a few minutes. And then that stranger disappeared. Here's Lisa talking to Tim. The interview starts with Tim reading a short piece from the start of the book. So I've got a a short section from the end of chapter one and I will, so this is on on the train and Ellen has just taken, uh, she's holding this baby for the first time, Mia, and um, waiting for Catherine, who's the mother, to reappear. I allow myself to imagine just for a moment what it would be like if this little one was mine, if I was returning from the hospital with a baby in my arms instead of a prognosis even bleaker than last time. To finally use the little box bedroom for what it had been intended for, saved for, a nursery. Instead of a quiet, empty corner of the house left in stasis like a shrine to a life unfulfilled, to something that would never be. I've imagined this for so long, dreamed of it, of night feeds and cuddles and tiny fingers, walks in the park and first words and bedtime stories. All the little things that parents take for granted. I lean closer to Mia's forehead, breathing in that indefinable, soft, sweet baby scent of pure, clean skin and talcum powder and new life, wondering if Catherine knows how lucky she is. There's a shift in the train's momentum, its speed easing as it comes into the next station, the last stop before Marylebone. Open countryside has been replaced by busy little villages and roads, church steeples and barn conversions, commuter land on the way into northwest London. I look up to see if Catherine's on her way back, 
but she's still hidden from my view at the end of the carriage. How long has she been gone now? Two minutes? Three? The next stop slides into view. Sear Green and Jordan's, a little two-platform country station with a footbridge and a small wood-panelled waiting room, a handful of people waiting to board. Catherine has not reappeared. The train wheezes to a stop in a shudder of brakes, three long beeps as the carriage doors slide open and a few passengers step down to the platform. I raise myself carefully out of my seat and look around, checking the other way down the carriage in case Catherine has somehow slipped past while I've been busy with Mia. But I can only see the football fans, all in identical red and white striped shirts with close-cropped hair and long legs sticking out into the aisle. The seats across from me are occupied by a small red-faced man in a pinstriped suit who has managed to spread out his briefcase, laptop, newspaper and raincoat across five of the six seats, as well as the little table. He's not looked over at me once. Excuse me, I say to him. I don't suppose you saw the woman sitting here. Did she come past us just now? The man glances up, gives a single irritated shake of his head and goes back to his laptop. I'm about to stand up to walk down the carriage in search of her when movement outside catches my eye. A figure hurrying past right by the window. A blonde woman in a rust-coloured jacket. Catherine is walking away down the platform. So, hi, Tim. Thank you very much for joining us for the Hampshire Libraries podcast today. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you for inviting me. We're going to talk about your new book, Trust Me, which is an incredibly fast-paced thriller. Within the first few chapters, the story is already packed with non-stop action. Can I start by asking you to tell us what it's all about? Yeah, so it's, it's really a story about a woman called Ellen who meets a strange, two, two strangers meet on a train and there's Ellen who is the main character and she is on her own on the train. A young mum comes to sit down opposite her with a baby in her arms, a sort of three or four month old baby and the baby's uh, the, the mum is quite sort of stressed and the phone keeps ringing and, and they, the two women get to talking. And so, and Ellen just says, look, let me just hold the baby for a second while you take your phone call and get yourself sorted out. And then the woman goes off down the carriage to, to make her call. And then the next thing Ellen knows, the train's pulled into a platform and the young mum is walking away, hurrying away down the platform, leaving her baby, you know, with a, with a total stranger. So that's that's how it starts. And it's all really then, Ellen is sort of plunged into the situation where she's thinking, okay, well, I need to do the right thing. Do I, do I try and stop the train? Do I, did I call the police right now? Or do I wait until I get to Marylebone or, you know, and then, and then various other things intervene in her, her efforts to sort of do the right thing and make sure that the baby is kept safe. So yeah, that's kind of how it starts. And it all kind of goes from bad to worse for her from that point on. It definitely puts you in the situation, doesn't it? As in, how would I react if that happened to me? Um, what gave you the idea for the book? I was just sort of one of those kind of what if scenarios, really. I'm always, you know, my, my brain is always churning with these this kind of questions. And I was, I saw this very small baby one day. I was at an ice hockey match here in Nottingham and a few rows in front of us, there was a, a family with this young baby and one of those really smiley kind of, you know, cute babies that was just smiling at everybody. And I, I just got to wondering, well, I wonder if I could remember what, all the things you're supposed to do because my, my kids are 18 and 21. Now, Ellen, as a character is determined and resourceful even when she's put into the situation that she's put into with the baby this isn't the first book you've built story around a strong determined woman as we've seen before in books such as 29 seconds 
as you're a male author, this isn't something we'd necessarily see from your style of writing. Um, is this something you are keen to do, is to see things from a woman's point of view? I normally start with that kind of small kernel of an idea, and then I try to imagine what's the best story I can tell. And with Trust Me, it seemed like that would be a really interesting dynamic to have Ellen in that position. As she's a she's a woman, she's always wanted to be a mother herself, but has never quite happened for her. So, but I do think, and, and with Twenty Nine Seconds, also it was it made the most sense in terms of the story and in terms of the thriller aspect of it would work so much better with a female protagonist. I think so far, including the book I'm writing at the moment, I've I'm split half and half between female leads and male lead kind of characters. It's 50-50 at the moment. I think maybe from from my perspective, it's maybe slightly not easier to write from a female perspective, but it's almost like you can step outside of yourself and you can look at it really from a more of a sort of neutral perspective. I also get lots of help with that from from my editor and my agent, my wife, and lots of female input to (laughs) help me with that, with the writing. In the catch, obviously, that's from a father's point of view. So did you find it's from a point of view that you could see yourself in more, I suppose? Yeah, and that's that was definitely written from, so the, the main character in that is very much sort of similar to me in terms of age and stage of life and that sort of thing. And so, but I think in some, sometimes that's maybe having, having written that book, I've sort of learned that I think maybe sometimes that's not always that helpful because you take certain things for granted and you, um, you know, you're, you don't have that more neutral perspective. So there were certain things about, the character and, and the way he the way he acted and the way he thought that were that seemed to make sense to me but kind of wouldn't wouldn't necessarily make sense to someone reading about him so again that was it was a what what if question you know what if your child brings home a partner that you really get a bad feeling about so yeah in previous books such as 29 seconds you've tackled subjects such as sexual harassment in the workplace which again tends to be female focused in the media and in books are these topics you've consciously picked to explore from a woman's experience I think with with 29 seconds it was something that I had been because I used to work at a university in Nottingham and during the previous year there'd been a big investigation by the Guardian into that issue at universities and so I'd kind of become you know more aware of it because I'd, I'd worked in the press office so we had to sort of put together the response to that to the media um for the for the Guardian so it just became something that I was, for my, to my shame, I'd not been as aware of, of it as it being an issue in, in higher education as I probably should have been. And probably in common with other, other men, I really wasn't aware and so until you know, the, the Me Too movement really took off. And to see all of your colleagues and peers and friends who had never spoken about these things before, obviously, but that would suddenly, you know, saying, well, yeah, this happened to me. And and to see how prevalent it was, I just thought it was a thought it would be a really powerful um, issue to explore in the workplace. And with, yeah, with, with Ellen, I, again, it was a really just a case of, I thought it would, it would be an interesting dynamic to explore in, in that situation with, with this, you know, having to look after this baby and lots of, lots of stories are kind of based on, you know, parents and their kids and being separated from their kids. But I thought I wanted to, I wanted to sort of explore the dynamic of a complete stranger's child and, and even if it, even though it is a complete stranger she's sort of this connection starts to develop really really quite early on they only spend a sort of a, a couple of hours together to begin with but she's really starts to feel a bond with this with this child who is is not her child and I thought that was a looking at sort of looking at her journey and her her background I thought that would be interesting from writer's perspective to to explore in the, in the book 
There's another strong theme within the book, and that's a negative way in which characters perceive journalists and the mainstream media. So they talk about the usual lies, half-truths, and police propaganda regurgitated. Now, if we hadn't known, as we just spoken about, that your previous life was as a journalist and in media, um, we thought this could be a personal dislike of yours. Was the impact of journalism on normal people's lives a theme that you were keen to explore as well? Yeah, I think that that that, that line about the media was from a particular perspective of one of the characters who has a kind of a quite a jaded view of um, of the media. I mean, I was a journalist for for eight years, and I suppose I'm I'm I do have sort of good memories of of doing of you know doing that job. I, it does frustrate me a bit when journalists are kind of always portrayed as as the bad guys in. Um, in the media, in, in film, in fiction, and on TV, and things, I think they do. They do. A, they do do a really important job. But I think there's also there's also an element in the story of as a strong element of a strong negative side to it as well. And you see that with so one of the characters in the book has been become found himself at the centre of this police investigation, and as a result of media attention, his kind of his life is just completely unravelled, and he's not actually. You know, he's never been charged by the police, and I, I was drawing on parallels with some real life cases with, you know, where people where people have found themselves, you know, on the front page because they they, they have some sort of, sort of tangential connection to some terrible crime, and they the, the media sort of takes against them. You know, there have been some unfortunate cases of that where these people end up being completely unconnected to the case. But I thought that I thought that the influence of the media is interesting. Another another of the characters in the book is Tara, who is a is a journalist herself, and so I do have a quite a, a sort of affinity with with those characters. But I think it obviously there's been there's been a, some really really unfortunate headlines around this sort of thing in the last decade or so. So in the story, you have two very different policemen. You've got Stuart Gilburn, who's the detective inspector, and Nathan Holt, who's his sergeant. Gilburn, in his late forties, is approaching retirement and is compared at one point to having an approach that's more similar to TV detective Columbo, while Holt is described as more CSI Miami. Could you tell us a bit about the different characteristics and their relationship? Yeah, Gilborn's kind of what you, would, what you might describe as kind of an old-school detective. He's come in at the end, nearly at the end of his 30 years on the force, and he has been there. He's seen, obviously, the, the increase in, in use of forensics and DNA and so on, but he's still a big believer in kind of using his instincts and, and, and reading people and being a good judge of character. Whereas Holt is more, so he's a younger guy, he's still in his late 20s, and he's very much kind of, you know, a, a big believer in the in the power of DNA to get, not only to get sort of to, to find your suspect, but to get the suspect to a point where you can charge them and to a point where jury will will convict. So he, he's they're, they're quite sort of contrasting types, and I wanted to sort of, I thought it was quite it was quite fun to sort of play around with those two two types of sort of two different approaches to uh, to policing and of course I guess you know there there is a place for both of those things I think in uh, when you're talking about crime but I thought it was nice to have them have them paired together because they're a slightly kind of odd couple you know in terms of in terms of the disparity of age and the disparity of how they approach things yeah that was quite an interesting dynamic to explore reading the book was very visceral experience um is that something uh, something you're keen to capture the description and the feeling of the atmosphere. Vivid details are really important. I've become aware. This is the fifth book I've written, and I've sort of just become more and more aware as I've as I've gone through the experience of, of writing books that the vivid description is the, is really really kind of crucial to putting the reader, putting you on you know in the middle of the story. So I've tried to to do that more and more without you know you've got to be careful you don't overdo it and sort of over over layer it but um i think it is really it can be really powerful in terms of drawing you in and, and, and putting you in the middle of the putting you on the page 
when I'm writing it, I feel like I'm, you know, I feel like I'm there in the room or on the train with them sitting there. I put my headphones on and try and immerse myself in it. And that's the kind of, that's the same kind of thing I really want to achieve for the, for the reader as well. So they can feel immersed in the story and feel like they're, uh, you know, experiencing it themselves. Do you visit the areas where you base the book? So would you go and sit on the train that you were talking about? And I did, yeah, I, I did do that. I used to live in for a few years. I lived in um, in a place called Loudwater, which is near High Wycombe. So it's kind of in that area, um, in that South Buckinghamshire area. And my wife used to get that train to Marylebone every morning when she was going into work. And so, and I'd taken it a few times. I actually went, drove down there again when I was working on the book to to do that journey. So just to sit, to go and get on the on, on the station, just to sit on the train and observe everything and. I actually did that after I'd done an early first draft that it was it was interesting how much all the kind of details I you know needed to change to uh, to make it to make it accurate and some people will say well you know that you don't really need to do that but I, I want to obviously make it as try and make it as as real as I can and there's nothing more frustrating than when you know you get an email from someone after they've read it and saying I really like the book but did you know that you know the, the trains on this line don't have the doors slide instead of swinging or something so yeah it's um I, I'd like to be able to try and make it as uh, as accurate as possible. Another very clever means is by your brilliant chapter endings. Each one just teases the reader a little bit more and makes reading on impossible to resist. Is this a technique you've learned from authors you've admired? Yeah, I think it was. Um, I wrote a book before and I had anything published, which took about five or six years to complete and did lots and lots and lots of edits and, and learned quite a lot in that process. And I think. I learned you really you really want to try and sort of draw the reader through. You need to think about how you, each chapter starts and finishes, how it opens and closes, and how you can lead them on into the next chapter. Sometimes that's even the first thing I write down is what I think what I think roughly might be the the closing line of a chapter. So the sort of thing that will pull pull you through and make you carry on. You know there are lots of people who are who do that really well. Why well, I love Michael Connolly and I love Lee Child. I love. Bernard Cornwell, Stephen King, and I think that to an extent, certain extent, depending on which story, they're all kind of are experts, are masters of that kind of structure and, and, and uh, having those kind of mini cliffhangers at the end of each chapter. As this book does have the usual twists and turns and it's told from multiple viewpoints where we don't know who to trust and who to suspect, does this mean you spend a lot of time planning and structuring your story before you start writing or are you a bit of a just-see-how-it-goes writer? I spend about, I normally spend about six to eight weeks trying to develop the story in my head without before I actually you know start writing chapter one I'll spend that time thinking about the sort of arc of the story some of the main waypoints along along the way roughly where, where I think I might like to finish where it might where it might finish how it will start and so some of those kind of key key points so I'll, I'll plan to a certain extent which and that might account for maybe half or sometimes up to two-thirds of the events of the story but then it's only when you really start writing that the, that the rest of it kind of slowly becomes clear so I and then that's in terms of you know more about the characters and how they'll behave and so yeah I'll do, I'll do some I do a fair amount of planning in advance and I always sort of hear about uh, writers who can just sit down with a blank page and, and uh, you know write a whole book from without really planning and I'm quite, quite jealous of that but I um I think I would probably end up in a with a with a lot lots and lots of dead ends if I did that so I need to to make to make all the strands tie together at the end and to be, for it to be a satisfying experience for the reader I think it's I do need to plan things. One of your books The Holiday has been picked up for a TV series. Um, how does it feel knowing someone is taking your vision and turning it into how they envisioned it? 
I did. I have seen so the sort of scripts. There's, there's four parts. I've seen the four scripts of the holiday and was asked for feedback. It's a bit surreal, and I sat I sat in on one of the um, the, the read through by the cast of episodes one and two, which is a big Zoom call with like twenty people on it, and that was very surreal. It, you know, it's really good as well, but it was quite strange because looking at them and realizing they're the characters first existed inside your own head, and uh, and now they're on the on the screen. For this, I've just I've just sort of thought, you know, you know what? I've never written a screenplay. I've watched lots of telly, but I've never written a script. They had a really good scriptwriter attached, who's I think has done a really good job. Filming actually just started the end of last week, actually out in Malta. So yeah, I can't wait to see the finished product. But I think in my head, I'm thinking, you know what? The book is the book is one thing, and the TV series will will have lots and lots and lots in common with the book. But it, it will be kind of a slightly different beast than the than the book because they're, they're different mediums, they're different sort of forms, and they both be. They can both be good in their own in their own ways. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. At Hampshire Libraries, we're aware of how supportive you are to libraries and their borrowers, as you very kindly recently joined us for one of our online book club chats on Zoom. Um, it was our first session for which we ran out of virtual places, so you were very popular, and I know it was hugely enjoyed by everyone who came, so thank you for that. It's always interesting to hear about writers' connections with libraries. Um, were you a library user as a child, and what do you think about their role in society nowadays? I was. I, I used to go down um, all the way through from from uh, when I was at school. There we had a really good school library as well, and I do I do still go to them now because I like to write in my local library. I'll have I try to if well in almost not obviously the last year, but normally if there's no lockdown, I'll go out and try and do one or two days a week when I get out of my get out of the house and go and write. And I, the library, my local library, is a brilliant place to um, to work and just to be surrounded by all those books is. Uh, is lovely, and I do occasionally go down and see if they've if my book are on is on the shelf or if it's been checked out or uh, you know where it is. So, um, but yeah, no, I, th- I think libraries are libraries are you know hugely important. And I think sadly sometimes sometimes a little bit overlooked by by um, by people, but I think they're um, a really really important part of of the um, sort of the community. And I know that my local my local high street would be a much much poorer place if it didn't have didn't have a you know really good library um, on it. So yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan of libraries, and uh, I would you know I'd love to come back and um, talk to your your Hampshire Library group again at some point. Oh, that would be fantastic! Brilliant. Yeah. So what are you working on at the moment? I'm working on my sixth book, which will come out next next year, um, 2022, and that's about half about fifty five thousand words in. So I'm just gone past the halfway point and called has a working title of The Alibi, and it is about a group of teenagers who get up to, go, go you know, five of them go up to these um, woods one Saturday night and only four of them come out. And then all, all of them start to try to explain what has happened to this fifth missing teenager. And the parents get involved. And the parents of the, the family we sort of are following, they kind of give their son an alibi um, to say, yes, he was at home. And yes, he came back with his curfew, when his, you know, his curfew said, and no, he wasn't involved and it becomes clear that uh, he has not actually done any of those things and he may be really involved in um, something terrible that's happened up in the woods so yeah it's it's, um, it's kind of work in progress at the moment but uh, yeah, I need to deliver it by June the 1st so I'm uh, I'm, I'm, cr- I'm cracking on with it <laughs> I find it really interesting that he's taking on issues and characters which are perhaps predominantly female focused and it was really illuminating to hear what he had to say about the way journalists can bend the truth and affect people's lives. Lisa does a great job of running our online book club. 
You'll find all the details over on our Facebook page. Just search for Hampshire Library Service. Each month, the group chooses a book from our unlimited collection on BorrowBox. That means it's a book which loads of people can borrow and download to read or listen to as an audiobook. This month, the group voted and it was a draw between Sandy Jones, The Other Woman and Ken Follett's Lie Down With Lions. So you can take your pick or read both and join the conversation through our Facebook pages. Now, we'll be talking about some of the other books in our Unlimited collection later on in the podcast. But for now, we're joined by Amy and Katia from New Milton Library. They're going to talk about a book they've both just read. Welcome to the Love Your Library podcast, Amy and Kat. It's uh, great to have you with us. Great to be here. So you're joining us from New Milton over in the lovely New Forest. I've not been to New Milton Library before. Would you be able to give me a little bit of a feel for it? What, what's, what's the library like? Well, we're very small, um, but we do have a very loyal uh, customer base and we have lots of regular customers that come in. Uh, Most of our customers are slightly older age people, but we we have a lovely little library and it is a wonderful atmosphere. And it's so nice to have people back in the library again. It's so nice to have people walking around and interacting and being able to chat with people. It's an old building and it's got a lovely little feel. It's very, it's very homely and it's lovely. I, I love working here. Now you were saying that you've got quite a lot of uh, maybe older uh, users of the library. Well, one thing I associate with uh, New Bolton Library is your brilliant rhyme time that you've been doing online recently. So clearly you do have quite a lot of the younger users of the library. Oh, we do, definitely. And our rhyme times are always really well attended. We love doing rhyme time here. And we've got quite, along with the the older members of the community, we do have quite a few of the younger generation. And they really do enjoy coming along to rhyme time. And the parents love to come along and, you know, have that social social aspect as well afterwards. And you've been doing it online, as I say, through your Facebook pages uh, while the library buildings are, are closed. So I can really recommend anyone who wants to have a bit of fun to look back at some of those rhyme time sessions. But for anyone who hasn't been along, it, they're obviously for very young children, but, but what, should, what could somebody expect if you've got young children? What should you expect from a rhyme time session? Oh, well, with a live rhyme time session, it's a lot of fun. We do we do love to encourage everybody to get involved and get sing along with us. Um, and we have our instruments as well for certain songs. Uh, so there's lots of props. We have puppets. We have a little box full of bunnies ready for uh, the Sleeping Bunnies song. That's one of our favourites. Um, and we have um, scarves for Wave Your Scarf. And yeah, it's just a really lovely interactive session with the babies and, and parents. And don't be scared to join in because we're not the best singers and we know that some people can be a little bit uh, nervous about joining in. But no, do come along. It's really lovely. We do get it wrong as well. And we, we have we have our words with it, but sometimes you mix the melodies and everything and you just go help to the parents. And it, it can be quite funny. It, it shows that we're all human and it makes them more comfortable as well. So it's nice to make mistakes as well. <laughs> so you've joined us today to talk about a book that both of you have read recently. Um, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about it? Okay, so the book is called uh, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue and it's by an author called V.E. Schwab. Um, and it tells the story of Adeline, who's a girl who makes a deal for her freedom on the night that she's supposed to be getting married in exchange for her soul. 
So she gets a chance to experience life to its fullest without aging or dying. So she's basically immortal. But the catch is that she's cursed to be forgotten by everybody that she meets. So nobody can remember who she is. And she's not able to say her name. She's not able to be in photographs. And uh, yeah, the whole premise of the story basically starts. Uh, it follows the course of 300 years. So it starts back in, um, in France in 1714. And then it flicks backwards and forwards between the modern day and back, you know, 300 years in the past and follows her story. Yeah, normally when we ask for a description of the book, it can be easily summed up in a few sentences. But in this case, it's not so easy. It's such an extraordinary premise for a book. So um, so what did you both make of it? Is this, have you read anything by, by um, this author before? And, and what made you pick it up in the first place? I have read uh, um, other books by um, Victoria Schwab and um, there were more fa- more sci-fi fantasy. There, there was there was. It took me a while to get into them. And actually, the way we we read, both me and Amy were sitting together at the desk, and I was looking through the fantastic fiction, and it came up as a new book of hers coming up. And I read the premise of it, and the description. I said, "Oh, this sounds interesting," and I read it to Amy. And virtually, we both re- uh, reserved it there and then uh, because it was already on our catalog. Um, and since then, actually, we've had two more of our colleagues read it um, uh, here as well, and everybody has absolutely loved it as well. It, it has got this really unusual structure because there's this, the story kind of goes in two different directions. There's a switch between the past and the present and the perspective of this other character. I don't want to uh, give too much of a, a spoiler away. I don't think it is giving a spoiler away to talk about Henry. Um, so do you think that that structure worked? Yeah, I think it did. It was a little bit difficult to get used to in the beginning. Um, it did feel it was a bit confusing when it flicked back from. So obviously, it starts in his in three hundred years past and then flicks towards the the more modern time. Um, so, what, but once you get your head around that, um, it's really easy to to sort of get into. And I think the way that the chapters are structured as well, it is clear at the beginning of each chapter, it does tell you, you know, you're back in 1714 or this is modern day. Um, So it actually helps you in that way to sort of orient yourself as to where you are in the story. The structure is really good because it sort of unpeels the layers of what what you can expect from the plot as you move forward. And that's obviously always good in a book, but I think this structure in particular, it answers a question might be raised in one chapter in the, the modern day and then it's answered by a flashback to the past and I think I think that's a really nice way of doing it. I did notice it's available to reserve as an ebook on BorrowBox so if you can't get to the library uh, easily at the moment it's it's quite a good option to use. Obviously Addie is the central character, she's got a lot of qualities, she's got a lot of uh, endurance and strength, she's quite stubborn. Do you think that she was a sympathetic character? Did you like her? Did you think that she was good for the book? I think she was a strong character. I think um, she was very resilient. So she knew what she wanted from life. And even though she was thrown this, you know, this card, she was, she wanted to make sure that she had control of her life the whole way through, even if she was, you know, immortal. And there are certain things that she couldn't do. She did everything she could do. She was very let's say stubborn uh, towards the character who has taken her soul and she was very resilient and she wanted to make sure that she he knew that she was in charge of her life and he wasn't in charge. Yeah, she, she's she's type of character that I'd like to be if I was going through something like that because she found ways of making herself memorable 
although it was so difficult for her to do so. Um, so yeah, she was she was a great character. I loved her. I found that that theme, the theme of not being remembered and have you really existed if you're not remembered, I found that absolutely fascinating. And I think we've all, we've all felt like Addie at some times in our lives. But I really like the way she kind of examined all the different everyday consequences of how life is really hard when even things like not being able to eat at a restaurant because, you know, when the waiters walked away, they're not even, they're not, not only they're going to not, not remember your order, they won't even remember who you are. How did you think about the, the way she handled this idea? She's, she's done everything in her power to work around it, around the rules that were given to her by, by Luke, by the devil uh, who she got the deal from. So she's managed to, to stay with people long enough for them to either make a song with her and they wouldn't remember that they have done it, but they will remember the song at the end and they would use it. So she's left her little marks specifically to, through art. Art was the one thing, books and um, uh, um, not, not photos, although in some photos she, she did come up, but she was blurry and, and she always ended up being intriguing through everything she was in. Specifically one feature on her, which was the freckles that she has on her face, um, which resemble a star constellation. And um, that seemed through the, all the 300 years, they kept from propping up in some form, whether it was a painting or whether it was a song. Um, so it was, it was quite amazing how you can actually go around doing something and yet find a way to put a mark as well. It just shows that as human beings, you are so resourceful that you will find a way. So yeah, it was wonderful. And what about you, Amy? What did you feel about that aspect of the story? I think that the way that she uh, she made a mark on history was really interesting. And the fact that she managed to, you know, insert herself into periods in history and and she could see herself being in those periods, whereas other people couldn't. But I found it really interesting that uh, one of the characters, uh, Henry's, I think it's Henry's sister, um, she actually ends up picking up at the end that she's this same girl in all of these different pieces of art. And I found that really interesting that that was sort of the way that she's documented herself throughout the years. In many ways, it's obviously it's called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. It's, it's about, it's a book about legacy and uh, as you've mentioned, sort of the mark you leave on the world. I think that's the theme that isn't, initially apparent but it secures itself quite nicely especially towards the end and the writing style I just wanted to ask your thoughts on that it's almost like a narrative poem at points with internal rhymes and interesting line breaks did you enjoy that aspect of the story and what do you think it lent to the book I love the style of writing it's reminded me very much I've read not long before that Erin um, Morgenson um, books and it reminded me very much of the way that she writes as well. And it, it was very poetic and very beautiful. I think what he did, in, especially in those first hundred pages, when you're finding it a little bit hard to understand what's going on, it kept you reading and you really couldn't and wouldn't want to miss a word of what was written. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think it did start off, for me, it did start a little slow. But once you got used to, you know, the language and the way that she was writing and the way that it flipped backwards and forwards between past and future, I think it was written really beautifully and, and the language that she used really 
brought a lot to the story. As I say, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but the relationship that between Addie and Henry is central to the book. You could also see it as a bit of a love triangle. Um, so what did you think about the relationship of Addie and Henry and, and also Addie's perhaps toxic relationship with Luke? How would you see it? That's a very good question. Um, <laughs> it's definitely interesting. Uh, the, the relationship with Henry did obviously take me by surprise because you don't after reading so much of the book and she's been forgotten by every single person she's met and then all of a sudden this person remembers her it did take me by surprise and I think their relationship was really I think it progressed really well I mean obviously there was a link between them which I won't give away but the relationship with Luke as well that the way it was explained that 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 evolved I think it showed sort of a vulnerability in Luke as well as in Addie as well and I think the way that she described that was really interesting and it kept you guessing until you really understood what she was what she was trying to tell you about how Luke felt and uh, what his I don't know what his end game was I suppose. I like the fact that she managed through it all to stay consistent with with understanding what Luke actually was as well although she comes because of her vulnerability and not being able to be remembered and hold the relationship. She's used it to get her through the 300 years and continue on as well. And Henry resembled an image of what she drew when she was, before she actually even made the deal with Luke. So automatically that had made him close to her. That was the start of the relationship itself, plus the fact that he remembered her and has straight away brought them together. It is extraordinary to have a book where it is covering 300 years. And I know that some people have wanted her to have delved a bit more into the world events that would have happened. They got excited about the thought of, oh, she's going to meet this person and see this happening and what's going to be her perspective of this happening. But actually, that was pretty light touch. You were aware, for example, that the Second World War was happening and she got involved and got into difficulties, but there wasn't that much more about it than that. Was that something you think she could have done more about or do you think that would have made it a different book entirely? I sort of feel like it would have made it a different book, like you say. I, I don't think it would have had much of a place if she delved too far into it. What sort of impact Addy would have been able to have on historical events, I suppose that would have been another way she could make a mark on history. You know, she could impact somebody somehow. I think she fitted them in by saying about the being involved in World War II. I think she was sort of giving a nod to she knows that there are these things happening and she would have been involved in these things. I feel like if she put more into that, I, I think it would have turned out to be a different book. I think it's more about Addie and her journey through life. So if you had to pick a book that had a similar feel or theme, what do you think you'd choose? Definitely Erin Morganson. The style of writing, definitely Erin Morganson. It's just both absolutely beautifully, poetically written. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm more of a sci-fi and fantasy reader myself. So uh, this was a little bit of a departure from what I normally read. Um, but I would say, I would perhaps say that it was comparable maybe to a Neil Gaiman style of book. Um, the one that comes out to me is a bit, is um, the Graveyard book, which is, it's slightly similar in the way that it's, in the way that it's written and that sort of the theme of being invisible. But yeah, I think that's probably the only one that I'd be able to compare it to, I think. Hmm. And Kate, weren't you saying that you thought it was a bit similar to Life After Life? 
Yes, and I think the publishers have sort of said that. Life After Life, Kate Atkinson's Life After Life, and things like Groundhog Day and The Time Traveller's Wife. I was thinking this morning, there are other things that, that it reminded me of. Things like there's a film, The Age of Adeline, funnily enough, where there's this sort of curse of immortality. And this is really harking back to my GCSE English. But there's a poem by Tennyson, which is about the curse of immortality. Finally, I was just going to mention uh, Perfume by Patrick Suskind. I don't know whether anyone else has read that. It's a brilliant book, very strange book. There were elements of that that it reminded me of that book as well, that he, that he passes through life unseen for different reasons, unnoticed for different reasons. Um, uh, and that, so it did remind me of those, those books as well. Thanks very much for recommending that book to us. It was a really brilliant choice and one I'm sure will be enjoyed by many people. And we'll look forward to seeing you soon at New Milton Library. Thank you very much for having us. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. The Rhyme Time sessions at all our library branches are a brilliant way of getting our youngest visitors on their first steps to loving words and reading, as well, of course, as being great fun for staff and the children who take part. At the moment, uh, as Amy and Katja have said, we're running our Rhyme Time sessions online through Facebook, but we'll be introducing them back inside our buildings as soon as we can. There are some brilliant online story time sessions on Facebook too. I'd particularly recommend the Makaton story time on Gosport Discovery Centre's Facebook page. Well worth a visit. Other things we'll be thinking about over the next few weeks include Volunteers Week, which takes place in the first week of June. We have such an amazing team of volunteers at Hampshire Libraries who support the brilliant work of our staff. They're invaluable all year round, but particularly so over the summer when we have our annual summer reading challenge for primary school children. So if you're interested in helping with this year's summer reading challenge, which will kick off at the start of July, take a look at our website where you'll find links to our volunteering page. We've mentioned a couple of our unlimited borrow box titles already when we talked about our online book club, but here's a few more you might be interested in. You'll find the full list of all the Unlimited Borrow Box titles on our podcast show notes. One of our new Unlimited titles is Shylock Is My Name by Howard Jacobson, which you can download as an audiobook. This is one of those modern retellings of Shakespeare's plays. And Tyler's Vinegar Girl, which we discussed in an earlier podcast, is another in the series, which tells a modern version of The Taming of the Shrew. If you haven't already guessed, Howard Jacobson's book is a retelling of The Merchant of Venice. And an audiobook of Lee Child's thriller Echo Burning is also on the list. It's the fifth in the ever-popular Jack Reacher series. And finally, I'm going to mention The House at Riverton by Kate Morton, which is also available to download as an audiobook. I was a big fan of another of her books, The Lake House. And that's it for our pick from Borrow Box for the month. We'll include the full list of unlimited titles on our show notes. Thanks once again to BorrowBox for supporting this podcast. Don't forget, you can use BorrowBox to download ebooks and audiobooks for free with Hampshire Libraries. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the podcast. I'm Kate Price McCarthy. And I'm Hattie Dulac.